Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Hi, everyone. Today, we are welcoming back Anelody Milne, co-founder of Lemmy, and she was on right at the beginning of this podcast. So if you're looking for her first one, just go go way back to the to one of the first ones that we put out. And Anelody, I'm so grateful you could be with us today. Thank you. It's been good. It's good to be here. I yeah, love talking of- about this subject. It's like so dear to my heart. Yeah, and you are a wealth of information. So I'm I'm really looking forward to learning more from you today. And last last time you were on, you talked, we just touched on a couple of different types of education. And I I have been like waiting until we could get back together again because I want to hear more. It was just so fascinating. And we just didn't, we ran out of time last time. So I am really excited to hear more about it. Yeah. So do you want me to just start diving in or do you want to start asking me questions? <laughs> uh, well, I know y- you talked about how Lemmy was a perennial, correct? Yeah. yeah. Specifically, Can you describe that a little bit? Well, it would be good for me if I sort of backed up a little bit, if that's okay with you to, to kind of intro- make a, as way of, in way of introduction. So The general consensus is that there are four different types of schools of educational theory or philosophy. And I I know people are gonna balk at that, oh, you're, you're putting all education into four boxes. And that makes sense that we would wanna be our own individual, let's say ideas, of and creative ideas of how education should be however the reason that these boxes exist is because it addresses specifically certain things ways that that education um educational approaches think so let me introduce the four types and then we can talk about goals and the way they think okay so the four types are perennialism and you can think of that as perennial plant. It's seasonal and it, you know, circular and it comes back around. And the belief there is that it's um, a whole education for all. So it would be more of educating the whole child. That's sort of what they're, and the, for the whole society. And then they're going to talk, I'm going to talk about goals and methods and things like that in just a minute, a minute, but then the second one, would you, could you give like maybe a, a person that people might be familiar with? You could say like maybe Charlotte Mason or, you know, cause like people aren't maybe familiar with the term perennialism, but they'd be familiar with like Charlotte Mason or, or people who like promote it at Mortimer Adler would be definitely a perennialist. Mortimer Adler. Yeah. And Shinichi Suzuki is a perennialist. They are very much about the classic approach. 
so some people would say Montessori. I think Montessori probably is more progressive. Some people say, well, of course, all of the old people like Plato, <laughs> you know, the old thinkers, probably. And then the, as we come into the new, into the 20th, well, 19th and 20th century, we're going to be moving into the more progressives, um, people who are more progressive, thinking more progressively. So, but let me move to the next one. So the next one would be essentialism. Um, essentialism is education. It, it literally could look like perennialism, but only taking, choosing a teacher, choosing the important parts, what they thought, think are essential for children to learn. So they're going to take out excerpts of books and, you know, rather than, oh, we give you all the classics and we just have you plow through them and, you know, figure it out. We're going to give you what we think is essential out of this piece and this piece and that piece. Some people feel like that type of education might be more rote which it probably is because it's difficult to get whole ideas out of parts. And so you have to memorize the things there that becomes more rote. Would you put that with like classical, well-educated, sorry. Would you put that with well-trained mind? Okay, so well-trained mind, I, I love... I love a well-trained mind and I do believe that it's a perennial education and it's so exhaustive. So I would not necessarily put that in well-trained mind. However, the one thing that well-trained mind does promote is rote memorization. And that is an added piece to the print. They, you know, they take the perennial piece and they add this rote piece of memorization and then you kind of have a combination so it's good to kind of think that about this in if we started with perennialism the first step away from perennialism is probably essentialism so we're gonna as you move away from strictly perennialism we're gonna there's like this space in between perennialism and then it's probably going to become more essentialism what's essential we got it we only have a certain amount of time we want to give them what they essentially need so then the next one is progressivism and again I, I do think it's helpful to think about it this way that the next step away from essentialism is going to be probably progressivism and then progressivism is really a lot about progress and John Dewey was I would say the father of modern progressivism for um, the public education system and their concept is really knowledge is progressive and we need to keep keep up with that progressive knowledge 
And so the stuff that we learned from the old people, the classics, is less applicable to us right now. So we really just need to expose ourselves to this new, whatever's new, whatever's rising, whatever's coming right now. And we need to experiment with all of that. It's very experiment oriented. And some people would even say this, that science itself, when it became progressive, sort of lost its philosophical underpinnings. So, and, and we can kind of go into that a little bit if, uh, at the end, if you want to, because the book that I'm referring to is called from Plato to Piaget. It's not something that I made up on my own. And he said, I'm a wealth of information, but I really am not. I just know how to find the right books, I guess. And it's been really wonderful to have books that have described it and helped me understand it. Okay, so then the, the last one is going to be existentialism. And then if we can even think of it as, you know, now we are, let's say, three or four steps away from classical education. Would you draw it, draw it like a dia dialectic if you were to diagram this? Or would you draw it like a, just like a zigzag descending downstairs? Oh, I really like that question. So the dialectic would be, I have a thesis or something already that I have, and then I'm going to introduce an antithesis, which would be the opposite of. So, you know, we're going to go sort of in that semi, the start at the top, go to the semicircle to the bottom. And so we go from this thesis to the semicircle to the bottom to the antithesis. And then coming back up above the old thesis to a new thesis. So I think the question that you're trying to ask is, do people, would they use the method of the dialectic to get to the next level or the next philosophical education, educational philosophy that we are promoting in our schools? I, I don't think that that is how all of them are introduced. I might think that's how existentialism gets its power or gets its foot in. And there's a lot, all kinds of reasons why I might think that because existentialism is, it's, so let me, let me just define it quickly. So existentialism stresses the achievement of an individual and their self-fulfillment. Sartre was like an, an existentialist. And he, Sartre was, or how do you say that? It's French, I'm, I'm Jean-Paul Sartre, Sartre. Isn't it Sartre? I thought yeah. of Sartre. I don't know, it's, it's French. Um, <laughs> I, I don't how really do love it. I don't love his works anyways. No, I think it's Sartre. Yeah. yeah, so he he lived between 1905 and so started he so so in the 20th century. He was a thinker. He really in, influenced a lot of the thinkers. Other people think that Nietzsche was maybe a father of existentialism. And which is interesting is then we're sort of actually kind of going away from educational philosophers and we're going back to sort of the philosopher philosophers 
which I think in the end, we can think of it this way anyway, that philosophers are always sort of influencing the educational philosophers. So whatever the philosophy is happening in the day, it's going to influence the thinking of the educational philosophers of how they want to apply education in, in their time. Does that make sense? Okay, so in the existentialist, the individual is the foremost important. And this would introduce what we would call a child-centered. So I'm actually gonna back up and I'm gonna give you the centers. I'm gonna describe these four using how the centrality of it. So perennialism is going to be teacher student centered teacher mentored really centered the a teacher a, a student has a need and the mentor has the has the knowledge to know what to give to the individual student and so it becomes a teacher student duo essentialism becomes teacher centered and then progressivism becomes experimentalism centered. So we're gonna experiment with, with the relationship. And then existentialism becomes student-centered. Is that helpful? Okay. So if the individual is the foremost, I'm gonna go back to ex ex existentialism for just a minute and I'm gonna kind of go into that a little bit. If the individual becomes the most important part of the equation, then the teacher is there to create an environment where the student gets to tell the teacher what he wants, not what he needs, but what he wants. So we sort of move from what is needful to what is essential to what's practical to what's what do I want? That's sort of the process, the progression through that. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I'm kind of feeling like, you know, like a love of learner is very child directed. Is that yeah. essentialism? So essentialism, no, it's not going to be, you mean existentialism? Yeah, so that's very interesting because I think that if you would be a love of learner as a perennialist, you would understand the role that you play in the child's life and you are going to introduce what is needful and you're gonna expose and continue to um, help them uh, nurture what they what is needful in their lives. So. Yeah, I've always explained or described the love of learner stage as kind of classical unschooling. <laughs> so uh, that, that makes yeah. total sense for me, but I can see yeah, how it would be. 
Yes, which is an, ex a, a, you know, exposure to what is needful. Right. And then, and then through example, showing how to be young. So that's going to be the perennial point of view of, of a love of learner. So you said, oh, but love of learner is, well, depends on what your philosophy is. So if you have a love of learner and you're an essentialist, then you're going to probably like Charlotte Mason a lot. And I'm not telling you that I don't like Charlotte Mason. I really do. But you're going to like it because it's just giving you what's essential. And your love of learner is being exposed to such lovely things, but they're also giving, being given to what, what is essential for them not necessarily what is needful. And a mentor and a, a perennialist mentor understands that each child has their own need and they know the balance between individual and the, the individual and collective need. So they're going to make certain types of requirements of work balanced with those requirements of play. And with essentialism, they're going to give them specific things they want them to have. And they're going to want to food spoon feed them a little bit, which is beautiful. For a love of learner, it's almost hard to get wrong uh, unless you want to squelch the, the love of learning out of them. So those two philosophies are very beautiful. And even if you go to, into progressivism, where we're doing experimenting and this is where Montessori is definitely part. So you can kind of see how Montessori bridges between essentialism and progressivism. She's going to give the child lots of independence and lots of, and teach them the essential things they need to know. And then they get to start experimenting with knowledge. And still another really beautiful way to do it, right? Um, because then the child, it's just put in an environment where they get to explore and experiment, but the environment is a little bit more controlled because we're trying to, we have an agenda of what the experiment is going to be like. Okay. And then if you have a love of learner in the ex existential point of view, these where things might go a little bit awry because it's, left up to chance and I would say that if you were to think about uh Rousseau he was he was that's exactly what I was just gonna say I'm like oh this sounds like on education by Rousseau he's an existentialist yeah I was like yeah yeah and definitely not a perennialist in any way shape or form because he does not believe in the society or the balance of the the collective and the and the individual he only is interested in the individual and he wants to take all restriction away so he's not going to be progressive because he's not going to offer offer he's not going to offer any opportunity for an experiment you know an environment of, of experimental he's just going to leave the child to themselves and let them see if they can figure it but out is that also why people might say that's Nietzschean because it's the will to, yes, uh, will to the power. will to, to power yep. idea 
yep. that within each individual is this will to power and we foster that and then that's what creates success or like the, the Absolutely. yeah that's correct 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 and so i'm not gonna lie it this could if the will to power is couched in the narcissistic personality disorder category this could really start so we know narcissism is not just in the genes it's a learned it's a learned behavior so this could really create a tendency towards narcissism because it it, it becomes then the will to power and the most powerful child in the group is going to win all the time yeah it's kind of like the the thing that comes to my mind is like fostering this intense selfishness because in order okay because if you're abandoned like if there's no direction yes then the self has to be what directs so then i think naturally the thing would be if, if there's no like mentor teacher direction that selfishness to be to, to succeed has to become stronger yeah. than any other I'm actually gonna, qualities. So selfishness is definitely a good word to use, but also, and clearly, clearly that's going to happen if you just put, you know, if you give them carte blanche to do whatever they want and have whatever they want. Selfishness is what happens. But really, if you were to ask an existentialist, they would just say something like, we want to give every child a equal chance to create its own life and without having to conform to demands outside of them. And I would say that becomes, that, that nurtures self-centeredness, which I think is different than selfishness. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, there's a big difference because you can see selfless people who are self-centered and yeah. yeah so according to people well according to this view people can't achieve personal meaning by being confined to a pre-existing orthodox orthodox belief so you can see how far that now comes from the original let's say perennial point of view, which is that there is a good and a right and a moral that that is needful. So, you know, we can, we could talk about where we are today in, in our educational philosophy, I think. Well, kind of what you were, when, while you were talking the epiphany I had, and maybe you can, Direct me if this isn't if this is off or not, but I, I almost feel like the educational theories they come out of the necessity driven by the I don't know if zeitgeist is the right word, maybe the cultural or the national identity or the need the need that the the, the national identity has to fill because like if you're thinking about like I was just thinking about Montessori versus Charlotte Mason and you think about the French culture versus the English culture and the the zeitgeist of the English culture being this this intense order and you know this aristocracy where that there is essential things that you have roles that you have to fill and things you have to know in order for you to be successful as an 
as a citizen of of England, right? Versus like Montessori's more, you know, a lot of experimenting, a lot of like what's, you know, that like you could almost put like the French zeitgeist and the English zeitgeist in those two different categories and then and, like really get a lot of that. And then even put like the American, you know, you can see that progressivism really pushed us with towards that because because we were one large experiment anyways right yes, we we, were. absolutely and so you, I, I almost see like the connection between what we theorize and push for education extremely closely connected to our national ideals or our cultural ideas ideals yeah absolutely okay so where would Asian tiger moms fit in. Yeah, can you hold on one second yeah. because I want to go off what you just said. That cultural ideal in America. So many of us who are in the United States of America are that we're more familiar with that cultural, those cultural phenomenon. And I would say that during the 1850s, let's say mid mid 1800s there was a huge push away from let's say tribalism to nationalism and this is why Horace Mann who was an essentialist absolutely an essentialist 100% he was like the father of essentialism in America um they wanted to identify what was essential knowledge to have to be identified as a citizen 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 of the United States of America, no matter what your cultural background or ethnicity. And we've come full circle from away from that. That's what we were in the mid 1800s. And we've come full circle in 2020s to let's be all of our tribes. Let's not have one national um, identity and essential, you can see how existentialism is sort of at the at the root of all of that. You know, the individual is more important in their individual experience. So let's give the individual what it is that they need or they want or they desire to have. Let's feed that to them. And if they're part of this tribe, let's put them in that tribe. Let's, you know, if they're part of this tribe, let's put them in that tribe. And then they can be their own their own person away from that, the whole identity. So you would say like, perhaps when America first started, there was a lot of perennialism just because that's, that's what was existing in the, in the systems and models we had, which were either like. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the um, aristocracy was educated in the perennial way that they had a lot of freedom as children. The, and we're talking aristocracy. They had a lot of freedom as children. They they typically had governesses or, you know, parents who were quite, I would say, strict in their moral, you know, moral underpinnings. And so they had very strong ideas of the needs of what a child should, what's needful, but also what and also there was enough wealth that the child didn't have wasn't a workhorse necessarily. And that's sort of what we in the United States started with was uh, we had a lot of aristocracy in this in this country now that doesn't mean we didn't have a lot of working people we did but because we 
we started with sort of that, yes, you know, all of the founding fathers, every single last one of them, except for maybe Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, they all had a perennial education. And, uh, you know, they, society, culture was a little bit different back then. They were expected to be sort of grown up by the time they were 14 or 15 years old. And it was not uncommon for a 14 year old, 15 year old girl to get married. It wasn't uncommon for a 14 or 15 year old boy to start his career, you know, either going on to university or starting into apprenticeship. You know, that wasn't uncommon at all. So we've kind of extended things in our age for uh, several reasons. One is that it be, experimenting takes a little bit more time. And so progressivism kind, kind of introduced, well, let's, let's not invite our youth to, you know, break away from the home until they're 18 or 19 years old. And, you know, we, we can give them a lot of opportunity to experiment with what we think is the progressive ideas. So that's sort of how we, that's how our system kind of got developed. But Horace Mann, when he was in charge of the, the school system in Massachusetts, his concept, his idea was we're 14 or 15 years old, we lose them. We got to give them exactly what's essential up to that point. So going back to my question, just because I'm trying to understand like a little bit more of this, where um, do you think like the Tiger culture? Mom. Yeah, Tiger Mom. Yeah. Yeah, they're essentialists. They would be essentialists. Though. Absolutely essentialists. So essentialists are pretty successful then. Like, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And, and I would tell you that perennialism is super ideal and very difficult to achieve these days. So it's essentialism just became essentialism is really practical. Just really practical. So if, if I'm looking at my kids and I'm thinking, you know, what do I want them for their future? Like it, it looks, seems to me that if I want like, choosing which educational theory I choose to adopt in my home, what would be my primary motivation for choosing each one of these? Okay, really good question. So this now becomes a question of quality. What quality do you want your children to have in their education? And then, so that's the first, that's your going to be your first question. And then the second one is how much accountability do you want them to have? And then what are your performance expectations? So you sort of have to ask yourself those three questions. Could, could you just, so that this is don't have a good enough definition. What, what, what do you mean by quality? Yeah. So, okay. I would say for a, if you are really a true purist perennialist, the quality you're going to look for is a moral upstanding citizen who knows how to think. 
So you're going to look for religious training probably, or, uh, I mean, I don't think spiritual training would have, would be necessarily more important than religious training. And I think that Alexis de Tocqueville actually, even in, in his book talks about the, the use of dogma of that the American, the American people had for their children. And he said, you know, as, as a French person, you know, we've really tried to get away from dogma because we hate it. Cause you know, all that religious dogma is just brought nothing but pain and sorrow for our people. But he comes to the United States and he says, wow, you go to every single town and they've got a dogmatic church in every single town. And the, and the people are bringing their children there and they are being fed dogma. And when you look at their villages, you're like, oh, wow, this isn't bad. So he's starting to think there might be a use for this moral dogma. And if we do it right by giving them a moral background and teach them how to think, they can navigate through, well, that's a dogmatic thing that I can let go of that I learned as a child. So, you know, the things that I learned as, as a child don't need to stay around with me forever. I can, I can move forward with what I understand about my religious upbringing and be able to think through scientifically and logically what's the best way for me to go forward in my life. So that would be like a quality that they're looking for, a perennialist. So if you're, go ahead. I was just going to say like, so then what's the accountability? Like how much accountability, like who's holding accountability? Is it you or the chat? Like, can you define that? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question too. So yes, go to the next one. So, so the accountability piece actually for perennialists, they, their hope is that accountability becomes accountability to my society. I'm accountable to be a good citizen, literally accountable to become a, a good citizen and give back what I've been given. And so it becomes, I mean, of course, Rousseau is not going to like that in any way, right? Because you know, he's, he, he was really counterculture when it comes to, you know, letting the society or culture preach to you how you're going to show up, but that, it, you know, that accountability piece actually creates a lot of stability and happiness in people's lives. It's so interesting because, yeah, like the, the first thought that my came to my mind was like Corey Ten Boom and her education was very highly built on the accountability uh, in her community you mm -hmm. know yeah and it served her very well you know yeah and it's interesting because some people would say well the Americans they're not let's say collectivists they're individualists well they're only individualists because the education system changed in the eight, mid 1800s to essentialism. And then, you know, the rugged individual became sort of the accountable piece. I'm accountable to actually other people and the expectation that, that I can give something to the world rather than I'm accountable to take care of my 
community and be a part of that community. That's a little, it's a, just a, just enough of a little bit of change in the idea behind it that it created more of the rugged individual. And yeah, then, so it almost feels like kind of, you know, in the, the breakdown, I kind of see this happening probably around 1910, you know, early 1900s really was where I feel like you see this big shift towards more essentialist type of education. But you can see that Little House in the Prairie was very essentialist, which is in the 1880s. Oh, really? Well, mm-hmm. well, you can see the shift of of like, you know, the community falling apart because of the economic pressures that established mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Um, the technology of, you know, the combine. You know, it was like a simple invention, but it was so life changing because yeah. if I had a field of wheat prior to the invention of the combine, I needed 100 people to come. So you needed to come to do my field and then I need to come and do your field and then together we'd have enough food to get through the winter right but then the combine comes along pulled behind my horse and now I don't need 100 people I need two and and so then when that happened like it became more profitable for me to own a lot more land and it changed a lot of things so it's just interesting too because sometimes they don't reflect upon how invention plays a huge role and I I think that's why sorry that's why you see like almost you can see it's exist existentialist really coming into existence now because it can like yeah. it can be fed because you can through technology we have today through i mean ai is now going to the way that they're going to be implementing it is it's a personalized yeah and uh, each person has entity their own panel and their yeah, own that their will own. learn your preferences learn what you like learn how you like to learn and then start just feeding you those things like and just to to your will really and and i've i've seen quite a few people talk about in the education world how that's going to be the future of education is everyone has a personal ai either connected to them through whatever elon musk is doing or through other means like the phone or, or things like that but and that's actually why mark zuckerberg is so motivated to open source all of his technology which is weird you'd think that you know you know worth millions and millions of he has open sourced a ton of it because he says i never i don't want it to become a monopoly because i want everyone to be able to have this ai that's theirs and he thinks it's only possible through open sourcing a lot of things so it's really fascinating how you can see technology really influencing and driving education in different directions. Yeah, I'd like to actually really explore the idea of what the performance expectations are of that, honestly. Okay, so we talked about accountability a little bit with the perennialism, essentialism, but we didn't talk about, are you guys interested in talking about the quality for each one of these, that question of quality? Yeah. Okay. So if you were to think about qual- the quality that you're looking for, for perennialism, it's that moral individual who is an upstanding citizen and that's, and the quality of education you give them is going to be reflective of that goal. Essentialism, we sort of talked about the quality that we're hoping to get and these little tiny incremental changes and the expectation of the quality is really forming around it, right? So, and creating 
the new way of thinking about education. So if we think about the quality of education for progressivism, it's going to be the, the quality is going to be I'm, I'm going to look for a school um, facility who can facilitate experiment. And so they're really going to start looking for the scientific mind and the technology, the quality of technology availability. That kind of progressive. So is this like all of the STEM that has been pushed? Mm -hmm. All of that is kind of the That's about the quality. That. It's about yeah. the quality. But yeah what they're trying to get, huh? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yep. Okay. And that was, we saw a lot of that, you know, during our time, Heidi, when we, as we raised our children, I feel like that we could so, sort of see p glimpses of existentialism creeping in here and there, but I really believe that you and I, our kids mostly grew up in that progressive age. Yeah. And again, it's not just like, oh, we're progressive. No, we're essentialism. No, we're progressive. And then we're kind of introducing new ideas, new thoughts, new questions. And, you know, we take years to think about it and mull over it. And we have new inventions and technology. And then, oh, now we're more essentialist or existential, right? You can think about it that way. So I would say, that progress the progressivists view human nature knowledge and truth um as constantly changing and so we want to be able to grasp the change and be on top of the change this is unlike these the perennials progressives must constantly constantly be rediscovering and redefining. And the value of knowledge is to solve the human problems. You know, and, you know, redesign and improve the world. Change it. We're interrupting this broadcast to invite you to ask questions or share your epiphanies in the comments section. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on the platform you are using because that really helps others find our content. Also, check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. And if you think about perennialism, their, their idea that probably is all ideas have always existed. Let's know what they are. And let's engage in the, the conversation of, of those ideas. What were you thinking, Tatiana? I was just laughing super hard because I was reading a book and just recently I about the Churchill's mom and she got canceled by the aristocracy back in the 1880s. It's like a full on cancel. And I was like, oh, all ideas have existed for all time. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, like getting canceled was something that like we, we see 
today everyone's like oh i got canceled this is such an evil thing of human of like social media has now created this thing of canceling i'm like yeah actually no we've canceled people before and we continue <laughs> to cancel people and it's kind of a problem and we probably should stop but anyway it's like going to you know, but we're not going to we're just gonna cancel them um and it was just really interesting because like she got canceled for supporting her husband and her husband was on the wrong side and so she got canceled with her husband and i thought it was really interesting just to be like you know maybe you disagree with her husband or not what he was doing wasn't okay whatever but it's like she got canceled for doing something that so i kind of find like canceling usually means you're doing something right <laughs> like i don't know like <laughs> so anyways i just i think it's funny because i i i, I well I don't know exactly what my thoughts are about evolution to its full extent. I think there is like this underlining idea that in that has just dominated our viewpoint in America and the world is the idea that I, I guess the Uberman will be achieved someday as a society and that we are progressively as a society getting better and better and better. And I just think if you look back it's like no it's like I don't think that is true the more I I mean when I read Hegel's dialectic and, and I read that I was just like this is an interesting idea could you eventually evolve into the end of time which is what he's like trying to get to and 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 I think as I learn more and more I'm like I don't really think that human nature evolves it, I, I think it just takes different shapes but this is the same principles well I mean yeah, I I do think that we evolve, but I think we also cycle, right? So so if you want to call it cycling evolution, you know, we do evolve. And and hopefully we're evolving cycling upward. Uh, that's my hope, right? You know, that we that we yeah, canceling is a real thing because you know, you know what it was like when you're back in the 1800s and you were shunned by everybody all the aristocracy because you weren't towing the line that's canceling you know right but we're hoping that we're you know going upward in that by actually challenging the idea of canceling right now <laughs> you know wait, hold on we've been doing canceling for all of millennia <laughs> how about we stop doing that you know, maybe, maybe we will evolve back, you know, to a new, a new higher place. I don't know. I do think that we do evolve to some degree, but maybe it's a perennial evolution. Does, does that make sense? More like the Tyler cycle rather than like. It's an evolution in and of itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's. So the, the other thing that's really interesting about the progressivism is 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 this idea that truth is constantly changing yeah how, how much do you think that is yeah, truth is a, an inconstant and with perennialism truth is a constant because all ideas have always been around how much do you think that is a direct result of 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 where we are in our scientific understanding of the universe being like prior to 1919 or whenever you know Einstein came up with his general theory of relativity, things were very constant. You know, time and space yeah. were extremely constant. They were things that we just took for granted as the realities of things that confined our universe. And then along comes 
and so it's like actually like the two most constant things in your life are relative <laughs> like yeah. like how much do you think the theory of or, or educational theory is is tailored to create minds that can maybe solve these problems that we are stuck on Oh, well, this is a big problem, right? Because again, this goes back to that accountability piece. Now, now we've been talking about quality and now you're asking the piece of accountability. So who is, who are you going to be accountable to for your education? And so perennialism would say, well, the accountability is to the society and, or me being a good upstanding citizen and to my family, I have an, a family name to uphold. So my parents mean something to me. And then so because we sort of have both of those at play here, the family, and then and then being an upstanding moral citizen, hopefully, that doesn't mean I'm going to be, but that's the hope. Then the accountability piece goes with progressivism. I am accountable to the authorities. However, this is the weird thing, progressivists reject the authoritarian approach by telling that they don't want to tell learners how to think, but they replace it with the goal of teaching children how to think for themselves. And so now we're moving from, okay, I'm gonna teach you how to think and we're going to give you pieces of logic and you're, we're going to give you all these ideas to think about and you're going to work on solving the problems that have always existed and we've always thought about and you, we're going to have you contribute to the conversation. Now we're going to, we're going to see if you can think, think for yourself. Just all by yourself in a vacuum. Then who becomes, a, who are you, what do you, it's just so funny. That's exactly what, like, like I don't know. I know this is, pro, pro, you know, pro, progressivism, but that's like exactly what Sartre is like. Let's put people in a vacuum, and, and like people don't exist no. in a vacuum. Sartre, and like Rousseau. who yeah. and Rousseau. It's like whoever's in a vacuum. Like, you know, like I get Locke putting Locke put people on an island to you know deductively deduce what happens as you add people to society, right? But like. Like Rousseau and Sartre leave people on islands and it's it's like or a bubble. I think Sartre talks about the bubble. But anyways, like I feel like this 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 idea is exhausting and it is exhausting. very it's very off putting because it's like it's what type of narcissism would you have to be in order to view the world as your own independent bubble? Yeah, you know now, now think about it this way too. Tatiana, we are talking about progressivism here. We're not talking about existentialism here, but can you see as we are progressing from one to the other, how it's getting even more um, intense, that narcissistic tendency will to power is going to start being, it, progressivism really started feeding in, is feeding into the existential point, point of view, the will, the will to power because of that. And then progressivism while it, it, it rejects authoritarianism, which is maybe let's say your parents or the dogma of religion, right? That's the authoritarian piece they wanna reject. They think that you should be accountable to social institutions, which now, hmm, that, who, who 
that feels a little, I'm not exactly sure how to. So they are, they want you to have your own thoughts, but yet you, they have to listen to you to get them. Well, they want you to be accountable to the social institutions. So they want to set up institutions that are separate from, let's say, your parents and your churches. And they want to set up, let's say, universities or think tanks or things like that, that then become the, you be accountable to us and you tell us your ideas and we'll tell you if they're good enough. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> I know like in the the Heitler cycle and things like that, it like it, it goes through one cycle to another and then it ends up back. Are we going back to perennialism? Because I'm not liking these other things. And <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that's as homeschoolers. We're like, hmm, something's wrong here. It's not right. Something's not happening. When did I lose authority in my child's life? How did that happen? And well, it happened, and I'm not trying to to blame John Dewey. I I actually like some of the things he says, but it happened because of John Dewey, because his system won in the end, right? And and then and then the institution, the schools became the accountability piece. And then Horace Mann didn't help, just saying, because Horace Mann said, you know, we're going to make education a uh, requirement and 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 we're going to hold you we're going to hold you to the law the parents to the law that if they don't they don't send their children to school then you guys are held accountable and you could you could lose your children right so and wasn't horse man the one that brought over the educational system from russia that was used for the soldiers, the military? Yes, Horace Mann contributed to the think tank of that. Yeah, okay. He did contrib contribute to that. Yeah, so you can see that, so compulsory education, that's what it's called compulsory education was introduced by Horace Mann. So, so now it's you can see where it's setting up, even though essentialism really was what they were trying to accomplish, you know, the, the national identity. They were trying to accomplish that uh, through all of that, you know, compulsory education, things like that. But you can see where now it sets it up for progressivism to say the social institution now becomes the accountability piece. And so compulsory education now says, yeah, your children have to be educated and they have to come to our system in order for them to be considered Uh, an authority on anything or have any kind of credibility. So in defense, I'm not that we want to have defense for existentialism, but there, I, I, I recently read a book called Punish for Dreaming. It's a story. It's a how, let me see, I can get the exact title, but it's basically the story of how school reform harms black children and how we heal and i wanted to listen to it just just because of where we where i live and and also like just the my husband's now uh in the public school systems and just want to kind of see the feeling of, of what's going on there 
And it was extremely eye-opening for me. I mean, I've read a ton of things and very well read in History of America. Um, and I, I've known all about these, but to hear it from the perspective of somebody who is African-American and has gone through this, it was very eye-opening for me to realize the, that what happened with desegregating the schools and and in, in the 60s and 70s and the amount of just, it was so messy. It was just so messy what we ended well, up doing. Can I just tell you why it was so messy? I And I believe this. I, I believe that the segregated schools were on different types of philosophical tracks. Yeah, they were. They, yes, they were. I would say that the the schools that were run by the African-Americans, they were like, oh, I would almost say perennialism. Yeah, they, they were, she was just they were really trying that, you know, and if you think of a, you do think of, of Booker T. Washington, and he did have a lot of influence there. I do think they were trying to figure out what was, and I wouldn't say perennialism, I would say probably essentialism. Booker T. Washington was trying to say, what is essential for the, our people, for our people to really embrace their freedom and understand their freedom and become, in, become independent, right? So yeah, yeah. Well, but also like, I just also read a, a book on Frederick Douglass and that was his big push was just like, we have to learn to think and then we have to learn to contribute in that process like so they had such good leaders who were really really doing a really good job and so they had teaching schools where the you know african-americans had these were taught how to teach well and they and they had great they i mean their resources were dismal and their their learning environments were disgusting and and you know there wasn't a lot of you know of this progressivism opportunity for them but they had good foundation well, that's the thing is, you know, in the 1950s, when, the, you know, Brown versus Board of Education desegregation, you know, happened, the, the, let's say, white American schools were well into progressivism, well into it. And the African American schools were, you know, they were still in the common school era, they were still doing the Little House in the Prairie schools for for each other, and it, and it may it may have looked like wow these schools are so bad they don't have any resources blah 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 comparatively okay yeah but they were doing a pretty good job yeah yeah so this author talks about how she was talking to her grandparents about their experience and they said when we were in those the African American schools we were known we were loved we were valued and we were challenged mm-hmm. and as we transitioned into the that white schools actually, they all went away that is the, actually the beauty of essentialism hmm. so i am going to tell you this i do believe that perennialism is super ideal and probably more geared toward a society where you have let's say classes you know, you have an aristocratic class and maybe a working class and the perennial education was giving to the, the, the aristocracy and, you know, maybe an essentialist education was being given to the working class. And that's, made, that's probably how that was going. And uh, maybe giving essentialism to all of everyone across the board was, low, was leveling the, flank, the playing field. And I think that probably is what we were trying to do. Well, so then to finish my transitional thought, 
I think the reason why you see so much of this modern jargon pushing for the social institutions to be the place that um, that finds healing is because of the mess that was created by the government and by the states and by the communities. And so then there's a lot of distrust. There's this, there's a lot of like, okay, we tried your way. You guys suck. And then there's also a lot of dis, there's also a lot of distrust of there. We cannot allow this to fail again. Right. So it, we have to have a sure way of doing that. And the sure way of doing that is this is the standard the social standard we're setting. You're going to meet that. Right. And so I, I can see why you can you can see that transitioning to that. And there's such a strong pull and fight for it because it's rooted in a lot of pain and a lot of of poor choices made. And and like a reaction. So even though it's not like a thesis and an antithesis, I think to some extent it is like this happened and reacting to that is this is going to be what we're going to do moving forward. And um, also see like <clears throat> as the family has broken down through the lacks of morals, there's a lot of pain there, right? So I see that existentialism on the rise because you have to be a strong individual if your family isn't going to yes. be strong. If it's caught, if the family's mostly causing pain, you know what I mean? Like yes. if the family is the source of most of all trauma and pain, then the family oh. needs to not be in control nor have access. And you as the individual have to be yes. this more Rousseauian Yes, you can see which now is setting us up for existentialism, for sure, right? And because because the accountability piece for existentialism is um, your own individual choices. So that's what holds you accountable, the consequences of your own individual choices. And you have the right to determine what you want, what direction you want in your life, and that you don't that accountability doesn't, you don't have to be accountable to parents. You don't have to be accountable to dogma of the religious institutions. And you don't even have to be accountable to the social institutions. You just become accountable to yourself. And they reject sort of, they, uh, so the American school system that are uh, as existential emphasize the group process and group norms. So that sort of helps the um, individual decide what is normal. Okay. We're starting to run out of time. So I wanna be sure that we touch on how do we take this information and apply it in our homes and in our our, our commonwealths, our library communities, and create a, be a better society? How do we get away from all of this negative that is in all of these different theories and, and, and help our kids and, you know, uh, the kids that we work with? Yeah. Well, I think the big th three questions it really comes back down to quality accountability and performance expectations. If you can answer the question for those three things for yourself in a very deep and meaningful way, what you want for your own education and your children's education, 
You can't give your children what you don't have. So you have to be willing to make the sacrifice to get what you want. If you're going to be in charge of their education. So it it is going to be a an absolute nightmare for you because you don't, if you don't have it, you have to find it and get it. And and I will tell you, I was so fortunate to be married to my husband who was a self uh, autodidactic, right? He was self-educated. And I, I had parents who were very autodidactic, even though I had a school system experience. I came out of the school system a relatively unscathed. I would say I didn't necessarily believe that I was smart. I didn't believe that I could get educated. I didn't have a love of learning. But what I did have was my mother loved music and she gave me the gift of music. And so I did have a love of music that I was able to kind of springboard off of. And because I had that love of music, I was introduced to Shanit Suzuki, which is perennial education. And that was sort of my, my, dipping my toes into it and Shinichi Suzuki says you cannot teach your child how to play the violin until you play the violin yourself so you have to decide you're going to get what you want for your kids yeah we just read Suzuki nurtured by love in my family foundations class that I'm I'm heading up and we had a really good discussion about that. And we brought up that point about how we have to get the education first. So, yeah. And after that, uh, it, it, you know, it's almost like learning a language, right? It's, it should become fairly naturally after that, after as you're modeling it, that's was his kind of philosophy. And I don't know if people know this, but Lemmy was actually based on the Suzuki model. Um, Tiffany and I wanted to be able to create something that we knew was going to work and somebody else had done. And I was a Suzuki teacher at the time. And I said to, to Tiffany, I was like, we'll just do Suzuki. Just do what he did. And she's like, that's a great idea. So pretty much we, the, our whole mentoring training is based on how Suzuki taught his mentors or his teachers and the teacher training, you know, you go to a, a big, huge teacher training two or three times a year, you get together in groups. I mean, everything he did, we tried to duplicate because it was successful. And he has a, he had what we wanted. He had a perennial education and a philosophy of love of learning and nur nurturing by love. We absolutely wanted our mentors to know that they could nurture with love in an education. But again, you ask the question, how do we, how do we apply this? And I'm going to say, ask those three questions to yourself and then ask yourself how willing you are to get it yourself. There's a lot more on the line than just our kids' education in this. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult because we don't, most of us don't have what we're given, what we want, what we want for our children. And, and so we want, we're trying to, we're hoping to, to give them something we don't have, but we won't be able to. And so there's just so much pressure because these days it's 
to be a parent is so difficult. My daughter was at the the park with her two kids and, you know, she has a three-year-old and a one-year-old and they were playing on the monkey bars or whatever they were doing. And she was sitting on the bench reading a book and she was really literally getting scowls from other parents who thought she wasn't doing a good job watching her children. Yeah, well, Addie is very mobile for her age. And so I can see why some parents be like, you can't let your child do that because she can do things that most other kids her age can't do. <laughs> you know, my, but no, this is just an, a reflection of how we are to, in society to each other. Yeah. You know, and, and back in the day, okay, let's even take this back to tribal days. You know, if you were in a tribe, and you were trying to do your thing, you were taking care of each other's children and you were contributing to the welfare and well-being of that child instead of, you know, pointing a finger and saying, you're doing it wrong. And that's what the outcome of being accountable to the institutions has created. I think for me, like, it's a breath of relief to some extent, if I know that I'm trying to, to do perennialism and, and that's my goal and my accountability isn't to institutions, but my accountability is to, is to, are my children good citizens, right? That's my accountability. Then to me, it's a, like a huge relief off the shoulder because I just actually, this the other day, we were at a party and someone came up to me and she said and said if if i ever had a girl would you teach me how to raise them because your girls are, are so amazing they are lovely and i was like i don't know what i would teach i don't you. know <laughs> like, i don't know how to teach you i don't know it's like i don't know like like okay i don't know if i can teach you like how i got that like it because looking back but you have, if, to have a grandma just like me. Yeah, yeah <laughs> have a good grandma. No, like like looking back, if I think about it though, it was my intent was never to produce highly efficient children who could say or 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 perform to a certain way, right? My t- intent has always been to to have my children be aware of themselves and aware of their responsibility to to society and. Per- being the best selves that they can be. Does that make sense? Like not necessarily putting all this pressure for them to be perfect, but like, you know, how are you treating your neighbor? How are you doing these things? And so like, to me, it's very validating to know it's like, it's okay that I have four kids and none of them can read independently yet because I have four children who can like, for, for example, like my ch- my son was out playing in, in the community space that we have in our little town and our, our city inside the city and he's like who the heck littered all over this place and I was like oh I don't know and he's like this isn't okay you can't just litter here that's that's unacceptable he's like this place is clean and we have to clean it so he went home and grabbed a garbage bag came back up and cleaned up the whole hillside and you know like I didn't tell him pick up the garbage like that was something he saw at six as unacceptable for as a community right so like it, it it's something that it's it, i'm realizing as you know yes my six-year-old doesn't perform well on the standard first grade test but he's understanding his place in the world and acting in a way to make it better 
and to fulfill that accountability. So then it, so then where's your value? So for me, I think as a parent, take a breath of relief and be like, okay, I'm achieving my goals, even though the world and society is telling me I'm failing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You do have to, (laughs) you have to hang on to that because it can get rough, right? This is a roller coaster ride. You know, actually, Heidi, part of me is thinking we might have to do another podcast because I would love to talk about the different philosophers who've contributed to the different types of educational philosophies. And but and and I don't want to disparage necessarily any one. Uh, uh, yes, actually, I have one approach I don't like. Uh, clearly, I am not an existentialist. I don't think that it is an evil approach though. I don't think it was necessarily thought of as an evil approach. I think that there's just, again, a different quality that they're expecting, a different performance outcome that they're expecting. You know, that they are asking a a question and answering it differently than I would answer it. But I think there's a consequence to that, that they don't get to choose. And we get to live with it. It's called mental health crisis. Like, well, I would, I would agree that there is some mental health crisis going on because of it. I'm not gonna lie. Okay, so I just had this epiphany. I wanted to share. Just, I know we're out of time, but I was thinking about like Lamez and the and Fontaine. And I'm thinking about okay, let's say let's put Fontaine in today's world with today's existential existentialist education. Uh-huh. You know versus probably what she got with a versus perennial you know well Fontaine uh, probably got you know maybe she got an existentialist as as existentialist um, yeah yeah but if you look at the progression of her life it was crappy right Mm -hmm. but she made choices to to create a better life for her daughter right based off of her outcome which was I have a responsibility to this child to create something beautiful for her life, right? Yeah. Well, Whereas today, Fontaine would be told, just have an abortion. You don't have any responsibility to anything, right? And then you don't have Cosette, right? So I guess the point I'm trying to get to is that the epiphany I had is suffering, pain, and survival have existed and still exist. But when you have more of like a perennial view set, there's a purpose to the suffering that's higher than yourself and a redeeming redemption quality that comes through the suffering. Yeah, because that, there's the accountability piece really plays out there, right? Yes. You, you understand that your account that that your meaning doesn't come from your selfish your selfish inward de- wants and desires. Your meaning comes from contribution. Yeah, yeah. But person. if it's the other way there seems to be no point to suffering other than you're stupid for suffering. Exactly. Clearly, right? Because that was your own choice. Yeah. And now you're suffering and that's a consequence that you had of your own choices. Oh, snap. You bad. Yeah. And you're just, you're just broken and inept and there's no redemption. There's no ability to have redemption because you killed it. (laughs) Like, you you literally through your existential viewpoint killed the opportunity you had towards redemption and the fact of the matter is is that 
you are always going to have suffering because we're never going to make, we're not always going to make the perfect choice. So anyways, it was just an epiphany that I had. It was just like super. I love that you just said that. I love that you just said that. That is, that is the bottom line as a mental health counselor at this point in my life. That is one of the bottom line problems that I see coming out of the youth today. Now I'm screwed because I made a bad choice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm doomed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then the other thing I just wanted to like to our listeners or parents, like I make so many mistakes as a homeschool parent. <laughs> it's, it's it's embarrassing, but like there's so many that you make. I think if you have a mind shift change from wherever you might be to perennialism, there's redemption there, right? Like there can be grace for the fact that it was 10 o'clock before I got school started today because I was not doing well. <laughs> like it just wasn't feeling well. I don't know what, whatever. There's redemption there because today both of my sons brought me their reading books to, on their own to read to me instead of me on their backs telling me to read to, that you have to get your reading done, you have to get your reading done. And I got to spend, you know, 20 minutes of fun reading time with them because they made the choice, right? So there's redemption in understanding the process and there's grace that can happen because it's like I don't need to have this time schedule thing that's going to burn me out I mean obviously if you're choosing essentialism and it works for you then that's fine but if, I'm just going to say for for a lot of people the the structure of essentialism is just wonderful for them and I think that actually isn't a bad approach either you know uh, uh, as I said I love a well-trained mind uh, it's so freaking comprehensive. I love the resource. And if you want to follow that and live by that, you can create, you know, Ben Shapiro's. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I just, I think the, the thing that I love about essentialism also is the, the not essentialism, perennialism is the idea that your children are responsible for their education. Mm-hmm. And so like, I've got to the point now where my children know that they have to get their own education. So I'll tell them, they'll be asked, do I have to do this math problem? I'm like, no, you do not have to do it. It's your education. You decide I'm not responsible for your education. So you make the choice. And maybe it's because they're girls, but they just always do it. <laughs> we'll see what the boys end up doing. But like, I'm, I'm like, it's, it's inspiring me. Like they're owning their education and their time mm-hmm. and they're managing and making choices. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's, but it looks so different and it's so hard. But I think if you have this, you know, after going through this podcast and listening to all these understanding, I can see where the stresses, anxieties come from. But if I know that's not my goal, that's not what I'm trying to accomplish. It's not the direction I'm going. I'm choosing to let that go and be okay with the fact that that's not where I'm going, you know, and be okay with the fact that my neighbor is choosing an existentialist education or, you know, essentialist or whatever. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I could sit here and listen to you guys go on and on and on forever, but we do have to wrap things up. And Anelody, I would love for you to come back on and go deep into philosophy and and all of that. Uh, I just I find this fascinating, and I'm looking forward to reading the book that you suggested. I from Plato to Piaget. Piaget. Okay. And I'll have links in the show notes for that too, if anybody else would like to do that. 
and it's interesting to me how it I, I kind of see these similarities and I, I love those questions about quality accountability and performance expectations and how just understanding that just diving into those questions will help everyone kind of refine how they do things and why they do things right. so that they do them for the right reasons. Yeah, so. absolutely. Thank you so, very anyway, much. thank you so much for sharing your genius with us today. You're welcome. It was good hanging out with you guys. God bless you all. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things. <laughs>